And we will read our passage in uh, just a few minutes here. Now, many of you will be familiar with this, hopefully. Uh, the, the children's catechism that a lot of us uh, use with our children, uh, it asks a very simple question, and yet it's a very profound question. I want someone to answer for us this morning. Where is God? God is everywhere. Good. God is everywhere. And what do we call this attribute of God? Good. His omnipresence. This is God's everywhereness, if you will. His omnipresence. Um, so this is uh, this is what we call an incommunicable attribute of God. It is an attribute of God that cannot be um, communicated to us. In other words, we cannot be everywhere in the way that God is everywhere. In fact, we can't be everywhere in any way. Um, So God is everywhere. This is his omnipresence, an incommunicable attribute. Now here's another question of the catechism. Who is God? Does anyone know that? Yeah, good. God is a spirit and has not a body like men. So uh, when we talk about God in that sense, we are talking about, um, uh, in essence, we're talking about the Father, but the, the Trinitarian Godhead. God is a spirit. So God, as spirit, can be everywhere. And then the next question is, can you see God? Good. No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. So God is everywhere. I cannot see God, but God always sees me. These things, maybe we have, uh, uh, well, we've made them very simple for children to be able to recite and understand, but there are some profound truths here that really get to the heart of answering our question Uh, in the text that we're going to look at today. Um, And these are questions that really do begin at a very early age. Perhaps uh, you yourself, when you were younger, thought these things. Uh, Maybe you've tried to communicate them to your children and have had these questions asked before. Um, Where is God? Is God with us? Why can't I see him? Uh, Asking all these questions, trying to find ways to answer them. Uh, We know that the Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent. Uh, In other words, God in his entire being, in all that he is, is present everywhere within his creation at all times. Yet, he is fully distinct from it. Uh, So, he's not limited by space and time. This is an implication of what David uh, said in Psalm 139. You don't have to turn there, but I will read that to you. Psalm 139, uh, verses 7 through 10. Uh, David says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And so David had this great sense that no matter where he was, whether he was in the heavens, whether he was in death, no matter where he went, God 
was there. He could not escape from him. David believed in God's omnipresence, that he was everywhere at all times. Um, However, how else does God speak of God's presence among us? How does the Bible teach us in in another way of God's presence among us? Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure, so there's a real sense of God's presence among his people, and particularly as the church gathers and we appreciate the means of grace together. Sure, Kenny? Okay, yeah. So God is, uh, we, uh, we know God through general revelation, through his creation, through what he has created and revealed to us. Good, what else? Okay, the spirit who dwells within his people makes, us, uh, makes God known to us in a much more profound manner. There's a real obvious one we haven't said yet. We're in Sunday school, so you can say. Jesus, yes. Jesus in his presence is God among us, right? Emmanuel. That he has come and dwelt uh, with the people of the world. In the incarnation, he became flesh. Um, So we have all of these ways in which God has um, revealed himself to us, made himself present among us, shown us his uh, his, uh, self, his omnipresence through all of creation. And so we have this great gift uh, that God has given us in all these ways. So it's fair to say that God does indeed manifest his presence in ways that are truly knowable and discernible. It's not something that we just receive and we hear and by faith we decide we're going to believe it. There are uh, tangible, knowable, uh, discernible ways in which we can know God's presence. And uh, most often when we read of God's presence in the Bible, it's accompanied by this reality that wherever God is, uh, there is also a blessing. In God's presence, there are blessings. Now, sometimes God's blessings don't seem like blessings, um, but if we understand God's providence, we realize in the end uh, that they truly are. So this brings us to our verse today. I wonder how many times any of us have been in prayer meetings or in a Bible study or in a conversation with another believer, and we hear someone recite Matthew 18 and verse 20. Someone read that for us, Matthew 18, 20. Great. Who's heard this recited before in a prayer gathering or Bible study? Okay. It's a very common thing that Christians say. And it is a great promise, isn't it? It's a wonderful truth. When the people of God are gathered together, we can rest assured that the Lord Jesus is spiritually present with us. And that's good news. However, what do we need to do? Context. Excellent. What is the context. What in the world is Jesus talking about in Matthew 18? What is Matthew 18 about? Is it prayer or worship or fellowship? What is it about? Any of those? Church discipline. Wow. Good. It's about church discipline. So before we jump in too far, let's begin with this. When people mistakenly use verse 20 out of context, 
Is there anything that we can affirm in what they are trying to communicate? If you hear someone, you're in a Bible study, and uh, you know someone's down, and someone else says, well, you know, we're here right now, and the Bible says we're two or three are gathered. The Lord is here in our midst. Let's, let's pray now, and we know that the Lord Jesus will be uh, present together with us in our prayers. What can we affirm in that? Anything? Kenny? That he is because he's omnipresent. Yes, excellent. Good. Indeed, he is here in our midst. God is here because he is all places at all times. And so we praise God in that. Anything else? Yeah. Good. Excellent. So I would say... You are right. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus tells his people, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with his people. He is uh, strengthening us, encouraging us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so I would try to affirm maybe that same truth using the proper context of Scripture. But we do have to look at its context here. And we know that it's church discipline. Uh, Jesus is instructing the church with regard to how it is that they are to deal with those who are in sin as individuals within the body of Christ. So we want to broaden the context a little bit so we can see this. We need to think about um, everything that is written in Matthew before and after this passage. So we're going to look at the, the broader context here. What, become, what comes in Matthew's gospel just before this section in Matthew 18? It's going to give us some contextual clues. Before we get to this part on church discipline, uh, Jesus tells a parable. What is it? The lost sheep. And what is that about? Okay, so we have a sheep that has wandered off from the flock, and we see the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go after the one that's lost, to, to restore that one back to uh, the flock. Okay, good. So we, we see that coming before this discourse that Jesus gives on church discipline. Now let's skip over our section for a second. Um, we have this idea of restoring one who's gone astray. That's a good summary of what we see in the parable of the lost sheep, a restoration of one who's gone astray. Now, what comes after Matthew 18.20? What's the next uh, thing that we see Jesus talking about here? What's that? Okay, yeah, so we see a parable of the unmerciful servant. And what is that parable about? Good. So we have a servant who, um, the, the man he owed money, he owed this astronomical, unpayable amount of money to this man, right? He owed uh, this tremendous, enormous amount. He could never pay it back, and he forgave him of that debt. And so what did he do? He turned around, and he went out into the community, and he found a man that owed him a small amount of money very small amount of money. The man said, I can't repay that to you. And so what did he do? He didn't relieve, he didn't relieve him of that debt. He, uh, he tried to choke him out and get his money out of him, right? He said, you owe me. Pay me back. Pay me back. And so we have, uh, and then the, the master sees that he has done this, and he casts him into jail. I've forgiven you of much. You refuse to forgive someone else of little. Uh, therefore, uh, you are going to be um, jailed. You're going to be uh, punished for the way you have treated this man. So um, that's after we have this uh, 
section that we're looking at in Matthew 18. So what is the main idea behind the parable of the unforgiving servant? What's that? Good. Excellent. So as Christians, we should recognize that uh, in Christ we've been forgiven of much, haven't we not? As we consider our own lives, as we consider uh, all that uh, we are and all that we have done, um, that God has forgiven us uh, far greater uh, than uh, anyone could ever do anything to us. We have offended God far greater than anyone could offend us individually. So how is it that God can forgive me of so much and yet I am so unwilling to forgive others uh, for so little? So that's the idea of the parable. So we see sandwiched in between. We see this parable of the uh, sheep that's gone astray and has been uh, the shepherd's gone to restore him. We see the unmerciful servant, this idea of one who has been forgiven uh, much but refuses to forgive little. Um, so right in between this, we have uh, this instruction that Jesus gives us with regard to discipline. Now, we have to know that in the Gospels, they're not always written chronologically. They are written in a way that the uh, writers of those Gospels are trying to communicate a specific um, uh, lesson to us, a specific principle. Um, and that's very much the case in Matthew. It's not just some kind of random assortment of parables and stories, and it just so happens that these are grouped in the way that they are. Uh, especially when you deal with Greek writing, and they're writing very much in a Greek tradition. The Greek writers were far more structured and thoughtful about how they put something together uh, than uh, writing that we read today. Uh, there's some fascinating literary features uh, that you can find in Greek writing, and so this is no mistake that Matthew has put this in the order that he has. Um, so the themes that are present here, forgiveness, restoration, and what we're going to deal with specifically is the theme of reconciliation with a brother or a sister who has sinned against you or who has gone astray from the church. So I want to walk through the steps of what Jesus outlined specifically, and then we will, it will bring us right up to uh, verse 20. Uh, so let's begin Matthew eighteen fifteen. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. So, can we just ignore interpersonal sin or conflict? Is this something that we're allowed to just ignore? No, not according to this. That is a bit of a trick question, though, because... What else does the Bible tell us? What's that? Okay. Uh-huh. Sure. We need to be a people who aren't uh, just ready to take offense at every turn, right? And love covers a multitude of sins. So there are some things that we should just be able to overlook, right? I know they didn't mean offense by that. It didn't come across rightly. If I can get over it, I just need to get over it. Did you have something, Russ? Oh, okay. Um, but the main idea here of what Jesus is pointing to is if someone sins against us 
and uh, it's not something that we can just get over or overlook, then we need to deal with it. We can't just brush it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. What happens when we do that? Sure. Eventually, you keep brushing things under the rug, you're going to start tripping over the rug, aren't you? It's getting bigger and bigger, and it's becoming quite a problem. We need to deal with them. We're growing in bitterness and uh, resentment in our hearts. Interacting with that person or those people becomes more and more difficult because we've never wanted to deal with the issue in the way that God has designed So how do we maintain healthy, God-glorifying relationships with one another, and specifically in the context of the church? Well, Christ died so that we could be reconciled. We could be reconciled to God, and we can be reconciled to his people. And so we have union with Christ. We have union with one another. We're bound together in our covenant bond together. We also have communion with God. And so, therefore, we should have communion with one another. Um, We have to guard and protect our relationships from sin, especially when those relationships are between believers in Christ. And another layer of especially between those who are in the same body together, in the same local church. In other words, all of us as the body of Christ should be able to gather together and there be nothing of sin hindering us from true fellowship and communion. It doesn't mean we won't have difficulties, and we're going to talk about how to deal with those, but it does mean that when we come together as God's people, that our relationships are not hindered by sin, that I sit over here, and they sit over there, and we keep it that way, and if we ever cross paths, that we turn our heads and look away, and we don't want anything to do with one another. Sadly, that happens a lot in churches, and may it be our prayer that it never happens among us. Um, Paul addresses this in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so there's an admonition here. We need to check our own hearts that we are not tempted in these things, but we also need to restore one another, to go to one another in sin. So this is one-on-one. It's not gossiping. It is as private as possible. If someone sins against me, I don't need to tell anyone else about it, right? I need to go to that person, and I need to work it out with them. And what is the goal of me going to them? Is it so I can point out to them that, aha, you are a sinner, What is the point? What's the point of going to them? Good. Reconciliation is the goal, right? Restoration in humility and in love. And this kind of brings us back to some of what we talked about in Matthew 7, right? About judgment, making sound judgments, checking our own heart, taking the log out of our eye before we address the speck in someone else's. Good. Well, then what if that's not cleared up? What do we do then? What's next? Good. What's that? Okay, good. So reconciliation doesn't always happen. Sure. Let's, let's, uh, Let's read verse 16, and we'll chat about it. Matthew 18, 16. Jesus says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Two or three. Now, are these two or three others that we go to get, are they our best friends? Is that wise? Depends on what your goal is, right? What is the point of these two or three others? What are we trying to do with them being a part of this now? What's that? Yeah, good. We need an objective uh, observation by someone else to listen to my side of the story, to listen to their side of the story, that they can listen to all of this and say, um, you know what? You thought they sinned against you. You're the one who's in the wrong. You need to repent and be reconciled to this person. Or they can say, you both are completely and totally messed up. You guys both need to repent and hug each other and kiss each other and get over it. Uh, we need impartiality. We need an objective observer into the whole uh, situation that they can look at it and say, uh, here's what we see in the midst of all of it. They're going to establish the truth of the situation. So what kind of person then am I going to go search for when I'm trying to find two or three others to help me deal with this? What do I want to know about that person? What's that? Okay, their integrity, good. They need to be a person of character that I'm going to look at and say, uh, as best as they're able, they're going to be objective in this situation, right? I want them to be, what, what do I want to know about their spiritual life? They're, they're discerning. Am I going to get a guy who became a Christian yesterday? Oh, God bless him. I'm thankful for that. However, he doesn't, have, he doesn't have experience in the Word of God to be able to hear things and understand what those things are in light of what the Scriptures teach. He simply doesn't know yet. He's still learning and growing. So I want someone who's wise, who's mature in the faith, that can deal with these situations according to the Word of God. Good. So I want some wise, discerning um, mature Christians to be able to come and to hear the matter and to give an objective um, uh, point of view on all of this. So we are getting... Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mark. Sure. I, I think it depends, and something you learn very quickly in walking through all of this is every situation is unique, and uh, every book I've read about church discipline and every kind of class I've taken, they give you a thousand examples and then the first time you have to walk through it is nowhere near any of the examples you learn. Um, so it becomes a very difficult thing. I think ideally you have two or three others who have no, they have no prior knowledge of the situation. Uh, because I think if we even consider our own hearts, we may look at our own lives and, and feel like and hope that we can go objectively into a situation, but we're very quick to draw conclusions based on our alliances and our friendships and our bits and pieces of knowledge. Anytime all of us, hopefully we can admit openly that all of us have listened to gossip before. We've, we've heard it. We've drawn conclusions about it. And in the end, we, uh, we were rebuked by the truth. Maybe no one had to come to us, but we found out in the end, well, I listened to something. I believed it. I drew out all the implications of it, but I never took the time to find out the truth myself. And now I'm just totally convicted by this reality that uh, I heard one side of the story and it sounded great. Um, I need a more objective. So ideally, we have people who aren't involved, but that's not always going to be 
possible for the case. A lot of times, and uh, this doesn't always have to be the case, I assure you, we uh, would love to see this worked out in the body uh, without our involvement, but a lot of times those two or three others are the elders of a church. Um, And hopefully um, you see the elders of your church as meeting uh, these marks that you're hoping to see in someone who can be involved objectively. Uh, But this is no, Jesus isn't saying take it to the elders of the church and deal with it. He's saying find two or three others. They may be, they may not be. It's okay. They're believers. They're part of the body of Christ and they can work through the situation together. So we get a sense that Jesus really thinks sin is a big deal, right? It needs to be dealt with. He wants us to deal with it quickly. He wants us to find restoration. Um, Paul uh, gives this illustration in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about sin that's unaddressed. It's like a little bit of leaven in the dough, right? So uh, Miss Debbie made our communion bread yesterday. Um, what, what happens if she drops a little bit of leaven in that bread? It starts, to, uh, it starts to expand. It starts to blow up a little bit, right? Instead of these flat pancakes of unleavened bread, uh, we start to have these big uh, loaves. It becomes a big deal. So um, he's saying a little bit of sin in our midst is going to expand into something that is uh, far uh, more than it should be. Unchecked sin can be devastating uh, among a people, whether it's one-on-one but your one-on-one sin is going to have a major effect on the whole body of Christ. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and you could say uh, there's uh, uh, so many stories across the land of uh, churches that have come out of those kinds of things. There's, uh, there's disagreements, there's divisions, and often an unwillingness to deal with those things. And so uh, new churches start all over the place. And, uh, and you start to see that spread. Yeah, Sam. Uh, I was reading a, I think it was, uh, it would be like, oh. <laughs> good. Yeah, good. We need to have, this is a regular part of our lives. We do it in our homes, hopefully, when we're dealing with uh, the people under our roof. Uh, if we're not, again, there's big problems. Uh, we're communicating regularly. We're dealing with issues as they arise. Uh, a very, very important part of life and particularly the Christian life. We're always having these kinds of conversations. And they don't have to be confrontational. They don't have to be hard. They can just be, uh, you know, someone says something and we just try to get some clarification. Did you really mean what you just said? Because it didn't sound very good. Um, and we, we clear that up between us before it becomes something else. So we have gathered two or three others. We've met with someone. It's been established by all of us that a person continues in sin. There is no repentance. What does Jesus say we do then? There's no reconciliation, and it doesn't always happen. So then we find ourselves in verse 17 where Jesus says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, uh, this is the widest circle of accountability. We've moved from a rather informal way of dealing with sin to a very formal way of dealing with it now. Uh, What was initially private has now become a public issue. Uh, This is where everyone's spiritual maturity within the church is really put to the test. Now, This doesn't mean we stand up on the Lord's Day when there's a bunch of visitors and people we've never met before and we say, listen, before we get started, 
let me just tell you what uh, Christina did and why we have to come to this today and deal with it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, see, you guys, you're already feeling like, oh, what did she do? <laughs> this is juicy. Let me hear. <laughs> she didn't do anything today. <laughs> Good, so we, we need to be wise, we need to be discerning, we need to be, um, we need to be careful in this, because again, what is the goal? The goal is restoration. The goal is not to put, someone, uh, to put someone's life under a, a really dark cloud so everyone sees them and wants to turn away and have nothing to do with them. The idea is that we are calling on more and more people to draw near to them and to plead with them for repentance. Restoration is the idea. Um, so Jesus says it needs to go public at this point because unrepentant sin is a serious matter for those refusing to acknowledge their sin and to turn from it. This is the opportunity for everyone who is in relationship with this person to reach out to them and to win them back for restoration and reconciliation. This is where the church learns what it is to, uh, to forgive because we have been forgiven. The worst thing that could happen is a person is restored and they are reconciled and yet the church now keeps them at an arm's length because we had to go through this. Rest assured, there are probably instances in all of our lives where if it was really followed through uh, in all of these steps that there could have been opportunity for the church to stand uh, together and to say we need to go together as a church to call this person to restoration. And in not... And... and, uh, And then if we wanted to come back as a part of the body of Christ, to be held at arm's length by everyone is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to an embrace, that we lovingly restore someone, that we bring them back among the people of God. That is the goal. Now, why are Christians so reluctant to follow through with these things? What is our reluctance in all of this? Josh? Sure. Yeah. Good. Uh, We need a humble posture among ourselves, right? That we say, oh, wait, I am a part of Christ's church because I had to admit on day one that I am a sinner in need of grace. I need Christ. And if I have Christ now, I should be all the more aware of all of the sin in my life and openly confess that sin. Uh, In our small group, we're talking through the Pilgrim's Progress, and there comes a point where Christian comes, and he is battling against uh, the dragon. And in his battle with with the dragon, uh, he, uh, the dragon who is representing Satan here, he's accusing Christian of all of the sins of his past. He's saying, along the journey, here's how you've fallen, here's what you've done. And so what does Christian say? He says, yeah, that's true. However, that is nothing compared to all the sin in my life. The sin in my life is far greater than anything you have said. Right? This is the way that we deal with sin. Sure, you are addressing all of these external sins, but you don't know the half of it. My heart is, is dark and hard and twisted in so many ways. And so as we freely and humbly admit to each other, I've got a lot of sin in my life and I continually need Christ, then we are more willing to deal with sin uh, with one another in a way that's not, uh, 
even confrontational necessarily. It's, uh, it's free and open admission and correction of sin. Yeah, good. Did you guys hear that? Spurgeon said, don't be offended when someone insults you. You are far worse than he thinks you are. (laughs) What else? What other reasons are Christians reluctant to do these things? Jamie? Sure. Yeah, so in some sense, there's an unwillingness for us to even address our own sins. So why would I want to do anyone else's. We want to let bygones be bygones. I'm a sinner too, so it's no big deal. So we just kind of overlook what we looked at in Matthew 7, right? I don't want to deal with the log in my eye, so I'm just going to let them leave that speck and not deal with it. Christina. Sure. Good. Time does not heal all wounds. We need to talk about them. We need to deal with them. Time passes, and uh, we grow further and further apart, not closer and closer together. Rob? Sure. Good. Yeah. We can think of it in uh, theory. Theoretically, we understand what Jesus is saying, but when we have to put it in practice, I've not seen it worked out before, maybe, and so it becomes a very uh, uncomfortable thing, right? Good. Well, these are all, right, uh, these are all uh, correct answers to this question. I think there are many ways that we are finding ourselves reluctant to follow through with the instruction Jesus gives. Um, and I think another thing to remember is that church discipline, the point of it is not punishment. The idea is restoration. We're not putting someone outside of the body because we just want them to be punished, per se, our idea is that we want them to be restored. And so they're outside of the body. Jesus says he relates them to sinners and tax collectors because they're proving themselves based upon their lack of repentance to be a non-believer. We are then calling them to say, you claim to be a Christian, you refuse to reconcile, therefore you're showing yourself to be an unbelief. There must be repentance if you're to walk rightly with Christ and with his body. And so we don't give up on that person. We don't, just, uh, we don't just shun them without having anything to do with them. We continue to follow up and continue to call them to repentance that they would be restored. And all of this is kind of the context to where we come to what we're looking at this morning. When Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So here's what Jesus is saying in uh, that verse. Whenever the church is pursuing and is involved in the process of reconciliation with someone who has refused to repent, they can rest assured that God is with them, blessing their efforts to find reconciliation. In other words, as the church renders judicial decisions on matters of right and wrong, and they're based upon the truth of God's word by wise, discerning people who are seeking to be objective, they should be confident that they are doing the right thing and that Christ is right there with them, spiritually present in their midst, seeing this through to the end. And we need that assurance in all of this because we would look at it 
And in our minds and in our hearts, we would say, this is hard. This seems harsh. It seems like divisive, all of these things. I need to be reminded that this is what Christ has said to do. And when he has said to do it, he has promised me that he is with me in it. He's with all of us in it as we follow through with it. So it's not us being harsh and divisive. It's us following through with what Christ has said. And he affirms it and he confirms it by his presence in the midst of it. And he is a God of reconciliation. And so we need to remember that this is the purpose. He's the one who's commanded us to be agents of reconciliation. The church is acting in this place then on God's behalf. And so divine sanction is there as we seek unity and God's blessing in something that is very difficult. So this is the context of the phrase where two or three are gathered. It is all about God's presence in judicial matters of reconciliation. When the church is gathered to restore someone back to the body of Christ through the process of discipline, Christ is in our midst. He is helping us Uh, to render these judgments on his behalf. Jesus talks about the keys to the kingdom of heaven belonging to the church. This is what he's saying. What's bound in earth, uh, what's bound on earth is bound in heaven. And this is what he's talking about, that the church is uh, is the body that God has given this responsibility to. Dealing with matters of sin can be tough. No matter how we go about that, one-on-one, two or three others involved, the whole church, But those who seek to be faithful to God in addressing it can count on God's unique presence as we do this. Uh, We should be eager to gather as brothers and sisters. Uh, We should be eager to gather together with the Lord to worship Him and to pray to Him and to fellowship with Him, to experience His communion. Um, And in the end, we need to be diligent to make sure that we can do that without tension and without unreconciled differences among us. This is what Matthew 18 teaches us, and this is uh, the context of verse 20. So any uh, thoughts or questions before we conclude? Before I pray, I want to say this. There's a reason why, uh, as a church, we've not had to go the full extent of this for quite a long time. And it's because I think the Lord has blessed us to be diligent to continue to follow through with these first two steps that we need not come to step three among us. And so we should be encouraged by that, that we are working hard in our relationships with one another. And if we're not, we need to. We need to consider these things. Um, If we make that a part of the life of the church, the body of Christ, then that should be a very, very, very rare thing that we would come to. So let's continue pursuing that together, that we can be rightly reconciled and come to the table together with pure, pure hearts and, and, uh, and our minds are, are free from that bitterness. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, so Debbie's asking, what about uh, issues with people in other churches? How does all that work out? That's a big question. The context really is, um, is dealing with the restoration and reconciliation within the local body of Christ. However, the principle still exists that we need to be reconciled with, with other Christians. That our lives as brothers and sisters in the universal body of Christ need to be reconciled as much as possible. Um, 
So should differences with someone in another church keep us from things like the Lord's table and stuff like that? It probably depends on the circumstances, but most likely not. The real call is for us as a covenanted body of Christ that we would be fully reconciled with one another and there's not these issues having to deal with. But, yeah. Sure. Yeah, you're not... Yeah, it's probably best to... Uh, this uh, two or three. Yeah, we don't want to overwhelm. You know, again, the idea is that I just have a few wise people trying to help me through. I'm not gathering a mob to go after them. Yeah. All right, well, we need to uh, conclude here so you can go get kids out of the nursery and we can gather at 11 for worship. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time this morning in Sunday school, and we are grateful uh, for uh, what you have taught us in Matthew 18. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we can be a people who are constantly striving to be reconciled to one another um, because we have been reconciled to you. And may we never come to a place where we uh, demand more of one another than you have demanded from us, uh, that we would be quick to forgive and to reconcile, that we'd be quick to admit our own sin and to have a desire for reconciliation. Uh, So, Lord, we pray that you would do this work uh, for uh, the, the beauty and purity of your church, for the good of your people, and for your great glory. And we ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.